Hello, and welcome to the Learn It podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim, to introduce you to changemakers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help, or not. In our first series, we're looking at how to reopen education settings in the wake of COVID-19, including how to close equity gaps and prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, education reporter Jenny Anderson. Head over to learnit.world to join the community or to get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. Our guest today is Liz Robinson, co-director of Big Education. Big Education has a singular mission to help head teachers deliver a more holistic view of education. At 29, she took over the Surrey Square School, a primary school located next to one of Europe's biggest housing estates. She was the youngest head teacher in England at the time and used values as a key driver to connect to the community she served. Surrey Square demanded excellence, both academic and personal from its students, but it also provided kids and families with what they needed to achieve it. I visited Surrey Square and I can attest to the fact that it is a place buzzing with high expectations, deep community involvement, and a lot of love. At Surrey Square, she pioneered a co-headship, so to balance having a family, a move that may seem sensible now, but was at the time an act of radical feminism. Liz and I talk about what's wrong with education in the UK today and how coronavirus has supercharged the movement to drive a more balanced approach to education. There's a sort of small C conservatism, I think, generally that has pervaded the sector that, you know, doing anything too different is too risky. And we, we've long said, actually, that the biggest risk is carrying on as we are. She explains how Britain's exam structure is built to ensure that a third of kids fail, how inspection frameworks are designed to kill innovation and creativity in schools, and what can be done to fix it. She also tells us about the Ofsted inspection that happened the day after she came back from maternity leave with her first child. Liz, thanks for being with us today. It is a great pleasure. So you are a teacher. You have been a teacher, you have been a head teacher, and you have been in lockdown with two young children. Can you tell me what lockdown was like for you? Yeah, I think the challenge of having a full-on, full-time job while um, trying to you know do the kids as well is 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 a fairly common experience for quite a lot of people I think being you know as you say an educator a a primary trained teacher um, and not being able to actually give them the time to do that has been really frustrating for me personally so my husband is actually stay-at-home dad so he's you know been able to do that which is in a sense meant I've been able to be locked away upstairs getting on with my job which is kind of great but on the other hand I would have really liked to be downstairs doing the other stuff. Well, there's, some, there's something funny about the fact that you're the teacher, but you're working. Yeah, uh, yeah. In that exactly. sense, Did you ever feel the need to sort of manage him and be like, no, oh, no, well, oh, well, so that is. Well, is, is, this a, is this a family therapy podcast? Or yeah, so you can imagine. <laughs> can be whatever we want to be. Full disclosure, we they have done quite a small fraction of the formal learning that the school has set them. They just haven't. So, I mean, the school, and no criticism of the school. It's a great school. Um, they didn't have live lessons. So they had stuff on Google Classroom. And especially the six-year-old, you know, she just couldn't really engage with it. it, took, it everything was a battle. So, we, we, you know, they've had a pretty free-form kind of time, to be honest. Um, and I think that's the reality is that every household is different. And it depends on what the parents are like, you know, how kind of structured generally you know what how you live your life normally um how what your tolerance is as parents for kind of free form versus 
uh, more structured play and what your kids are like and what they like doing and stuff. So, you know, we've got two girls, they get on really well and they have played together in the most fantastic way, endless, endless hours of it. And I've been honestly been quite happy to let them do that. And then, you know, I think the thing about being an educator is I see the opportunities to make to sort of get them to write stuff <laughs> or do the maths or whatever that comes up naturally through play. So it's kind of like an early years planning in the moment type style when a learning opportunity emerges, how do you capitalise on that? But I'm certainly not sitting here feeling smug like, oh yeah, we totally nailed lockdown in some brilliant way. We just did our, we did our best, which I think is all anyone can expect of themselves. But it's also a perfect segue to sort of what you're trying to do on a much larger scale, because what I hear you saying is that you were able to capitalize on moments to make learning much broader than just finishing the worksheets or doing the task that's been set. So you recently wrote a piece that calls for embracing the three H's, which effectively means calling for some huge changes in education. What are the three H's and why is now the moment to call for them? Great. Well, the three H's are head, heart and hand. And uh, that's a a concept that uh, we've adopted at Big Education, came from School 21, one of our schools, but actually has a a history beyond that. Um, And the idea of the three H's is really about breadth in education. It's about a more expansive education. There's there's head, there's academic learning, uh, heart, which is uh, well-being, social and emotional, your ability to form relationships, your ability to have, uh, you know, to build your self-esteem, your self-confidence, your identity, uh, have targets, have aspirations, um, all of that. And then hand is really about doing things. So having skills broadly, but making and doing things that involves the arts in the broad sense, it involves design, it involves um creativity it involves collaborative problem solving so that particularly that last point about problem solving is particularly under sort of represented in the current model of of school and what's examined so we would argue that the current model of academic learning you know even within head we're way too narrow we would never say that there's not a value in learning subject specific domain specific knowledge Um, but actually uh, when you look at um you know, what's the, the exciting innovations and development in the world, it's actually where disciplines cross over and meet each other. So if you look at AI, it's a combination of, you know, computer science and uh, statistics and, uh, you know, um, it, it, you know, in terms of robotics, we're into kind of advanced, you know, biology and learning from the natural sciences and it, that interface with tech. So actually, the notion that's not to say you don't need domain specific knowledge to get to that point but the way that schooling exists is there's very little scope for even acknowledging where those things cross let alone delving into them so so the three the head heart hand uh, we think it's it's a neat way of summing up that more expansive education we just know as human beings and as parents that there is more to being a human being than the kind of textbook knowledge that is overemphasized in our sector because of the way that school young people are examined and tested and therefore schools judged by that so there's nothing wrong with that it's just it's just overemphasized so this is about a rebalancing of emphasis and a broadening of emphasis um, so that there's more time more resource more intentionality put into those other aspects of what it means to be a young person what it means to be a child what it means to be an adult and I was involved with the EEF, the Education Foundation, about 18 months ago in a big piece of work they did about social and emotional learning, cell social and emotional learning in primary schools. And we developed, uh, did a fantastic um, global study of, 
of evidence-based practice and developed this kind of toolkit from that. So I would direct people to that if they're interested because um, the evidence is actually very compelling <laughs> about the importance of it in terms of meeting those a, the, the ends within itself around the heart stuff and social emotional learning but also the impact on, on academic learning is very strong so it you know it, it is an evidence-based practice there's a lot of talk about um you know research and evidence-informed practice in, in schools and at the moment that can be skewed towards pushing for a particular agenda around um, knowledge retention um, and, and a particular form of pedagogy but it's important that we look at the breadth of what the research tells us across all domains. If we were to guess what percentage of schools are getting this breadth of education and what are not, yeah. any sense of what that is? Generally speaking, particularly on the heart side of it, in terms of the social and emotional, um, there's a lot of that going on. I would say in every school. Of course, every school cares about that, but it is a matter of degree. Uh, I'd say generally speaking, and don't shoot me down, secondary colleagues here, but generally speaking, there's more of it in primary schools. And I think the, the, the way that primary schools are structured with most often one teacher for a whole year, you know, it lends itself to those very connected relationships between, the, you know, the staff and the pupils. And because that teacher has that holistic sense of, I'm responsible for this child's education for this year. So they, they see the child in the round, as opposed to being a secondary teacher. I'm not, God, it's so difficult. You know, I'm the history teacher. I see them, you know, one session a week or two sessions a week. And I'm part of that child's education. But you know, who grips that entirety of, uh, you know, the holistic experience for that child? It's not designed for maximum, you know, relationship and connectivity. It's designed for getting subject specialists in front of teachers to teach their subjects. You know, I don't, I, I don't wish to sort of sound negative about head teacher colleagues and teacher colleagues up and down the country because everybody who goes into teaching, you know, they, 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 they're doing it because they want to help children and they understand that children are little people growing and they want to be part of their journey, right? But I do think there is a very significant rebalancing needed. And I think that lockdown has helped with that. I think it's... I've had so many teachers saying that, you know, being on Zoom calls and actually seeing the kids' homes and seeing that reality has been really a shocking and profound experience when schools like ours are working in high social economic disadvantaged communities. That's, it's literally given them an insight into, into children's, young people's lives. I, I was a head for 13 years. So I became a head, you know, 15 years ago. And the pervasiveness of Ofsted and um, the standards agenda, which doesn't really mean standards it means test scores right it's so deep in people's psyche and now you've got a generation of teachers and leaders who have never known any different to that so it's just ingrained as a as a pillar of how things are it's not about saying academic learning and indeed passing those gateway qualifications doesn't matter um, it does matter, but it just it's not the only thing that matters. So there's a rebalancing and, and, you know, touching on qualifications there. I mean, actually, university admissions is um, a really interesting place to start um, work because in a lot of ways, the system is retro designed from getting into Russell Group universities. Um, and given that that only caters for, I don't know, the percentage, no more than 8% or whatever is in the population, it's probably much less than that. Um, who go to those top universities, you know, the whole system is is designed for that. Um, and even that, you know, I mean, our great colleague and one of our board members, Ed Fido, who's um, 
you know, redesigning university, the London Interdisciplinary School. You know, the notion of university that actually you just want to study one subject for three years is actually, you know, most people go to university because it's a rite of passage and that, okay, you know, they want to get a degree, but they don't really want to study, you know, chemistry for three years because then they're going to go and be a lawyer or whatever. So um, it's, it, it's a, it's a, it's, it is an outdated system. And then our hoops to jump through all the way going backwards kind of are fitted into that, which is never going to be the solution for everybody. Why now? I'm hearing you say that this, this moment is providing us something. What is it providing? Like from, from a big education standpoint. Like- I mean, our, our opportunity now, I mean, it's been great. We've launched this learning from lockdown website and to, you know, to really get ahead of the curve of not just responding to what now, but from the start thinking, okay, what's the longer term implication of that? And that's been a fantastic way of bringing together lots of ideas and thinking and starting to put out content for people to help roadmap, you know, how to build on this moment, both from a bottom up, how do we create then the toolkits, people to galvanize and build on this moment of change. Uh, we've got a first one today, actually, that we're launching a playbook about uh, well-being, um, but also how we collect and together those insights to, 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 to do more of your top-down uh, type influence. Peter, my co-director, Peter Hyman, um, had a piece in The Observer yesterday, which uh, did had got amazing traction. And he's, you know, we're, we're part of those national conversations with um, significant figures who are working on this stuff and I guess we're we're trying to use this moment to influence and feed in ide- our ideas um, into the the wider conversation you know we're about big education as an organization is about change you know we, we want change we want change in um, individual schools and in the system more widely and one of the great biggest barriers to, to change is you know status and status quo and um, you know, a ridiculously sort of busy sector where people are very busy and rethinking from first principles how you do something is is challenging and it but but I suppose the so so the moment now is that every every teacher and every head teacher in the country has has had to totally redesign their practice so the process of starting from scratch is something that most teachers and head teachers will not have ever had so they've had this experience it might have been quite traumatic and definitely very say, stressful. That's going to be necessarily a good thing. What if they're like, I just want to go back to how it was? Yeah. Well, that, I mean, I think that's, that is a risk that, that, you know, that, yeah, I want to go back to how it was. And yeah, there are things where it's like, oh my God, can't wait to get back to that because we really missed that bit of practice and we will definitely keep doing that. Um, but also, right, what are the new insights? What might we, what are the new things that we're going to do that we've never thought of before um, as a result of that? So I think it's being nuanced about it. It's trying to galvanise that experience um, and help people process what happened and see the opportunities and the things they want to get, want to go for. So I think alongside that, the other thing that I think helps us in this moment is that, you know, the government guidelines, the government guidance has been so bad, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, in every way, I mean, talk about kind of one big theme for us has been about psychological safety. So how do we make it feel safe? How do people, how do we make people feel safe in what they're doing, be that the heads, the leaders, the teachers and the children and their families? And I mean, to dissect the way the government did that, it's, it couldn't have been less, it couldn't have felt less psychologically safe for head teachers to be making these decisions. So, um, a lot of people, a lot of heads, a lot of schools didn't follow government guidance. And they, you know, my own kids' school, they did a rotor. The government told us not to do rotors, but they've done a rotor and they've done it and they've made it work and they've got all the kids back to school this term for part of the week. 
for most head teachers and governing bodies, they will never have expli as explicitly as that not done what they were told to do. So that, you know, that kind of empowered, rebellious sense of actually, no, this is my school. And actually, we know our community and we know our building. And actually, we're going to do this. Schools just had that teenage moment where they realized their parents, i.e. the government, didn't yeah, really know what exactly. they were doing. And they were like, do you know what? I'm going to do it my own way. <laughs> yeah. But I think that's right. Do they actually have the authority to do that? Like, does the structure afford you the ability, if you decide personally to do what you think is right for your community and your school, does the way the system is set up allow you to do that? I've always felt, as a head, I always felt quite a lot of autonomy. When a lot of heads would say, oh, you have to do this. And I don't know why that was. Maybe I've always been a bit of a rebel. Maybe it was because I was a head so quickly in my career that I wasn't as institutionalized, you know, I just kind of was like, okay, well, I'm going to do like this. And it didn't seem like I was being a rebel or making a big stand about something. It just felt like the right thing to do. Um, so Tim Brighouse, kind of grandfather of, of our sector, um, he talks about finding the gaps in the hedges, but the, the stakes are very high. So the, the counter incentives for um, varying from the norm are pretty high um, in terms of accountability. So I've always experienced it that actually there's quite a lot of autonomy in terms of um, curriculum and pedagogy because a lot of stuff went and even things like the, the literacy and numeracy strategies, you know, big uh, major initiatives, um, you know, under the Labour government, they were actually optional. There was a lot of furore about them, but you didn't have to do them. Um, so when you drill down to these things, actually seeing well, what, what do I absolutely have to do and then finding as you know the gaps within that um but i i i do feel now that well partly at this present moment there are no offset inspections um there are no inspections until that's been confirmed until january um next year um there's no league tables this year the unions are pushing very hard that there won't be any next year either we that remains to be seen but actually some of the you know those those shackles some of those um, pressures and restrictive pressures on heads have been released even if it's just for a bit um, and I think that yeah it does open up a different space for people even if for a little while to think yeah we've got a bit of breathing space here to think actually do we want to take this moment so you know in in, in other sectors they talk about disruption don't they all the time in disruptive interventions and that's always it's never been a word that's been used in our sector and I mean, perhaps for obvious reasons that you know this isn't a business it's not if, if if it goes wrong it's not just some investors capital that goes down the drain it's children's lives and you know you the the, the, the opportunity for experimentation is um is is perceived to be limited because of the fact you know these are actual kids and they only get one shot um so, so there's a sort of small C conservatism, I think, um, generally that has pervaded the sector that, you know, doing anything too different is too risky. And we, we've long said, actually, that the biggest risk is carrying on as we are. I mean, we all have, are complicit and exist within a system of, you know, if you take GCSE's non-referenced exam system, whereby by definition, the bottom third don't succeed because that's how the grades work so you're always going to have losers in a sec in a GCSE norm reference exam system and we all know by and large who those kids are who don't succeed
Uh, they're not my kids or your kids. They're, you know, they're, they're kids from work, working class backgrounds uh, where there's other complexities and um, deprivations in their, in their lives and experience. And we're all complicit in that as parents because we know our kids are going to, we hope <laughs> our kids are going to be, you know, in the top third. So what's so great about continuing that? You were head of uh, Surrey Square Primary School in Suffolk um, for 13 years. Um, what role did the inspection framework have in your life as head teacher? As head, I was inspected there four times. Um, yeah, so first time when I'd been there for about six months. And what role did it play? So that first inspection, that was 2006. It was under a framework, Every Child Matters. So uh, that was a big labour initiative, which was about... says it on the tin every child matters and it was about a holistic sense of um, a child's well-being so it included academic learning but it included happiness and well-being it included economic well-being and it it included physical well-being that was in my opinion that that definitely the best inspection framework we had so it was 2006 every child matters 2009 uh, another different framework um we got outstanding and then we merged two schools together. So we were re-inspected in 2013 under yet a different framework. Uh, that was my favourite one because I'd been back from maternity leave for one day when we got the offset call. <laughs> and then the last one, which was 2016, I think the last one was, um, yeah, which was another framework again. So the amount of time, I mean, I, I am not saying that there's not a place for quality assurance. So, so there is a place quality assurance we have a highly responsible and we should be held to account for that um from a from a quality point of view from a financial point of view and obviously from a safeguarding and standards point of view um but the the variability in the framework is it is beyond belief um and it is political the 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 way that um education has been devolved in england um is we really are an outlier internationally um, even compared to you know other other um jurisdictions that have you know decentralized it is extreme i mean the power that you have as an academy trust is very significant so so the central government doesn't have many levers they can't tell schools what to do very easily so it really is all put into Austin. that is the way that um the agenda is is pushed so uh it does change a lot and the stakes could be higher i mean i I, having lived with that pressure i live with it now responsible for three schools it is it is extreme i mean it is effectively as a head teacher it's an appraisal of your it's it's a job appraisal and which is subject to you know public scrutiny you know often to be fair have tried to sort of do this whole myth busting thing and we don't expect this we don't expect that but um, people don't, there's not, people don't trust it. You know, there's, it, it's people's livelihoods, it's people's jobs. I always say that to staff when they stress about offset. It's like, you don't need to worry. The only person who ever loses their job after an offset report is the head teacher. And I've, I find it really sad. I do a lot of coaching of new heads and, and, and um, aspiring heads. And you hear that all the time, what's your vision for the school? What do you want to do? I want to, get, I want to, be, outst- I want to be an outstanding school. And it's like, well, what does that even mean? you know, outstanding of what year. So you, you get people talking about their officer reports with a date attached to them because there's some some frameworks that are perceived to be tougher or 
you know, <laughs> whatever than others. So it's like, oh, I got outstanding under the 2017 framework, you know, because that was really tough to get. It was just nuts. It's like, what? It's mad. It, the, the, the definition of what great education looks like has been left, we've let it be in the hands of the inspectorate. I mean, my kind of comparison is, you know, off, Ofcom, who regulate, you know, TV and media, it's like them, you know, um, Netflix submitting next box set and Ofcom coming back and saying, all right, well, we'd only give that um, three out of five because uh, we didn't think there was enough cliffhangers and we, you know, the characterization was a bit weak and, uh, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. I mean, that's what we've got. They're not just saying this is acceptable standing in broadcasting or it's not. And this is the benchmark for acceptable standards and, you know, or not. It's Ofsted are in the business now of having a view on how education is delivered, that the quality of teaching, the type of teaching, the type of pedagogy is used and not just saying, you know, there's a there's a minimum bar and a minimum standard. What do head teachers need? most right now what do they need to make this vision of big education i think the, the first thing is about vision so the point about offset owning the agenda is that it's stopped heads having their own 2020 clarity on well what actually is my vision what do i believe in what do i want this school to be about um, and how do I triangulate that with my stakeholders so that that's not just a mad whim of mine, but like this is a this is a vision for this community. So that's the first thing. And I hope that this opportunity gives people uh, a sense of and that kind of sense of, you know, stepping up and owning their school gives people a way into owning that in a more holistic way. Actually, this is what we're about. This is what we believe in. I guess underlying that and then the next phase going into getting on with that is about confidence. So the confidence to act, the confidence to enact that vision. Um, Along with, I guess that's where big education, we're trying to help on all those things. We're trying to, uh, you know, articulate our own ambitious vision um, in a a way that can help people see where they might, you know, agree with that and, and take bits of it or morph it and use it for their own communities. So alongside then the confidence, and we certainly hope to give people confidence so that you can do it, even within all these resist, existing restrictive frameworks, you know, we're, look, we're doing, we've got examples of practice. Um, and I suppose alongside the confidence comes the knowledge. So how to is really important. So we're developing and have developed uh, and packaged up a lot of content that isn't sort of just saying, well, here you go, do this, it's off the shelf, because that, that never really works, but that is um, giving people a set of, guide ropes and frameworks and models to work through um, to go on this journey themselves in their communities. Uh, we believe a lot in oracy, you know, Voice 21, very proud part of our big, uh, big education family. So a lot of it we've designed in a dialogic way. So what are the conversations? What are the questions you want to be asking? Uh, what, are the, what are the conversations you should be having um, it, with your senior leadership team, with your governors, with your uh, wider staff, with your parents? Um, what are the questions we should be asking ourselves? Um, and if we ask those questions and have those conversations, it opens up um, the kind of co-design of new practices, um, hopefully alongside the confidence, the new vision, and some examples um, of practice and guide ropes to help people on that journey. So that all sounds very bottom up. Are you doing anything top down? Are you trying to engage the government to make the case for the change? Or are you really trying to empower the schools to just do it without the government? At the moment, we're really 
yeah, we're doing, it is bottom up. The, the current incumbents, you know, we have deeply, profoundly different philosophical views about <laughs> education. And I think we're kind of wise enough to pick our battles. Nick Gibb, you know, who's, who's incredibly long-standing uh, school standards minister, believes in uh, a very academic, a very knowledge-rich um, curriculum, which so do we. Um, but he doesn't believe that the other aspects warrant the same weight um, across the piece that we do in the nutshell. And yeah, we're not going to change his views or certain other influential people within the government. You know, that, that's, that's their ide- ideological view. If you pulled parents right now and said, do you want this three age vision, head, heart and hand, my sense is that they would all say yes. It, would you agree? Yeah. If you started changing the curriculum to do it, what would you say their response would be? My concern is that maybe parents want it in on paper, but once it yeah. starts happening, it looks really scary. Yeah, I mean, the, the reason that they're scared is because of exams. I mean, that's the... So it, it's like if, if the metrics and the, the measures of success are all don't change, there will be trade-offs that, that you can't maximise for GCSE outcomes and maximise for everything else as at school 21 they do eight GCSEs many many schools would do more than that but nobody ever needs more than eight in fact we would be probably pushing to be more radical and say actually let's just do six and leave space for other things but so parents are a massive part of the uh, the need for change because parents would have to opt for you know be comfortable with um, a, a portfolio of qualifications which look perhaps looks slightly different it's very difficult for parents, I do understand that as one myself, to break out of the shackles and the expectations of uh, they'll do this many GCSEs and they're going to get this many you know, grades and they're going to do this and they're going to be on this trajectory. Um, it is inherently competitive. So we're all in that. It's finding a balance and finding a voice for that, the, 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 the conflict in our heads between that sort of she-wolf competitive, not com- but you know that protective mother thing of like, oh, I want them to do well, and of course you want them to, you know, be okay, um, and also seeing what they actually need. That's such a hard ask, right? Basically, separate all of society's expectations from what you know is right for your child, and no matter how strongly you feel, you know what's right for your child. You're still battling a system. But anyways, we we I mean, indeed, but, but how? But isn't that when you just put that so succinctly, Jenny? That sums it up, doesn't it? That actually what we know in our hearts is right for our kids is really not what is being manifested in society in terms of the system. Well, I feel I know that. I can't say I speak for others. I think that there's, I think from a position of deep privilege, I feel like there's all sorts of safety nets here, right? I have more confidence that the system's going to work out for me and my kids. If I didn't have that confidence, I am fairly confident I would not be willing to take those risks. And I'm just trying to be honest because I wish I was the kind of person who would, but I feel like most human nature is going to be, I need something known and that I can hold on to. And certainly in my own reporting, I've just seen this time and time again, school reform agendas seem to be driven often by those who feel that they can take more risks. And I what I've, what, what I've always admired about your work is I actually think you're speaking from the standpoint of the most disadvantaged students saying they deserve exactly what all these advantaged kids have. Absolutely. Um, but it's just a bigger risk. But when you look at the appalling, you know, data on outcomes for children from disadvantaged backgrounds, notwithstanding, there has, you know, there has been 
some movement on that and there's a lot of you know massive massive amount of money and gone into various initiatives teach first you know all of that stuff um which is all great and noble and i support we're still doing a we're still doing a pretty bad job <laughs> you know we're, we're not starting from a position of it being great and thinking oh we're going to risk all this greatness <laughs> uh, for those kids there's a lot that's not so there's a lot, lot a lot of great things going on magic one you can do three things a radical reform of qualifications would make a massive difference to reflect a more expansive curriculum and to reflect more accurately uh, you know, young person's journey and designed from first principles a system which uh, is predicated on capturing the success and the progress of every young person so if you start from a point of inclusion you know, start from every young person has potential and has uh, we want them to be a contributing part of society how do we design a, a qualification system whereby we catch everybody so a system in which the bottom third of GCSE takers are not deemed a failure. Yeah. And not zero sum. Yeah. And it's not to say you can measure attainment as well as progress, so absolute outcomes, and be you know, differentiated to show the different places people get to. Um, but we just can't have a system where kids just get written off at 16 and then we try and haul them back in <laughs> uh, to HE and all the rest of it. Yeah. Exam reform has to be, I have to say something about Ofsted, uh, I, I would strip Ofsted right back to rethink it as an inspector and think about what, what as a public service does it need to actually inspect. Um, and I would commission, I, would, I, what, I mean, really what I'd love to do is take education more out of, out of um, politics. So there's a great initiative at the moment, the Fed, which I'm involved with, which is looking at developing you know, a 10-year plan for education. So trying to do something to depoliticise it uh, um, and create a longer-term strategic vision for education sector um, and really invest in building capacity of the profession to take a greater role in um, quality assuring and understanding quality um, for itself and with its peers. So I'm very interested in peer review. How can we be empowering the profession to be um, taking a greater role in defining the standards of excellence and um, upholding and um, quality assuring those? Okay. Super fun questions. Favorite book about learning? This is a um, offbeat choice, but I would say On Becoming a Person by Carl Rogers. It's a rejection of uh, traditional psychotherapy. It's about this person-centered approach. So that's my, I think um, that underpins my leadership and it also underpins my pedagogy, which is that you start with a person. Your favorite book or a book you love that has nothing to do with learning? Oh, good questions. Cersei. Um, Madeline Miller which I just read earlier this year which is a, such an amazing novel about female empowerment retelling from mythology it's fantastic and okay final question what have you been binge watching in lockdown that you love do I have to confess to this um, we've actually been watching Modern Family that's our latest binge watch American but it, I, I don't know if you've ever seen it which is I have I assume you do, you're not watching that with your kids <laughs> Not with the kids, but it is, I, we, we really, I think the intensity of being locked down as a family, it, it surfaces some quite big themes in family life in quite a light way. So we've been, we've been chuckling along uh, using that as a bit of a mirror in our, in our families. Thank you for being with us. Absolute pleasure. I hope that was helpful. What struck me most about this conversation was the idea that head teachers might be a bit more rebellious in the wake of COVID-19. But like teenagers, they realized their parents, the government, didn't have the answers and could not provide coherent guidance. So they had to figure out everything for themselves. 
Now they can take that newfound independence to define the education they want. I was also struck that the agenda they are pursuing is less about reducing academic rigor, but really about striking a better balance, what most of us would want for our kids, really. I love talking to Liz, and I hope you enjoyed listening too. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.